Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Rabbi Akiva Zweig's Wednesday morning shear. I do know people uh, are online and part of our group, uh, which enables them to be part of our questions and answers. However, uh, there are many people around the world who do listen to the shear, so welcome. Um, we find ourselves in exceptional and challenging times, and uh, I want to say, first off, uh, may our learning be in the uh, merit, the zechus of the, uh, all the neshamas who have, we've lost in uh, Israel, and certainly for this uh, safety and the speedy return of all our captives and the healing of the wounded and uh, the security and the safety. May Hashem uh, shine his light on all the Jewish people. And um, I want uh, all of you to know that it is a pleasure to be learning with you. It does give us all chizuk. Um, I thank all of our sponsors for our Wednesday morning shear, which uh, clearly uh, helps the Talmudic University and its uh, teaching of uh, worldwide Jewry. I uh, think we're good through the month of Kislev, uh, perhaps Tevis, but we welcome your inquiries. Uh, I also want to thank the legacy donors, those people who have invested um, into uh, their will, their trust, their retirement, life insurance. Um, it's an opportunity to name the Talmudic University, and it doesn't take a great amount uh, of funds to do that. Uh, if you call Melissa Leonard at the Yeshiva or contact me via, via the WhatsApp, I'll put you in touch with those people. And finally, what I do want to share with you is um, my residence is in Bell Harbor, Florida, and I'm very excited about the upcoming Shabbaton because uh, Rabbi Akiva Zweig will be the scho our scholar in residence at the Young Israel of Bell Harbor. We are hosting uh, many different events around the Shabbaton, but I invite you to join us for the Shabbos dinner at the Young Israel. Um, you can call the Young Israel Bell Harbor directly. And if you can find that number, then again, contact me through the WhatsApp group. I also want to encourage everyone who supports the yeshiva and all the work it does um, and all the learning and the study. Uh, we have an upcoming dinner December 3rd, Sunday night at Beth Torah campus. Uh, in Aventura, Florida, and uh, we welcome your joining us, and we hope you'll be there to show your support more, now more than ever. And uh, I want to thank you all for uh, listening to my message, and uh, I look forward to learning with you this morning. Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Pleasure to be with you, and we will be discussing today Parshas Vayetze. The title for this week's class is The Power of Unconditional Love. Unconditional love is a very interesting phrase. We'll discuss that in some detail, although probably not uh, fully in depth, but we definitely want to discuss how it relates to the Parsha and hopefully some practical applications for all of us as well. Uh, as you just heard from our hostess, Frida Greenbaum, I'm very excited to not only be learning with you today, but God willing to be attending a scholar in residence weekend at the Young Israel of Bal Harbor Surfside, Bay Harbor Islands, I think all of those are the applicable neighborhoods. And <clears throat> that will be, God willing, Parshas Vayishlach, so one week from this Shabbos. In addition to that, uh, Frida mentioned that we have the Yeshiva dinner, which is coming up, the annual dinner. It's, by the way, number 49, and a lot is already being prepared for number 50. So we encourage you to come and be part of the excitement as we lead up to the Yovel of the Yeshiva's existence here in South Florida, which is really a tremendous thing. I just want to share recently, <clears throat> as in last week, I was in LA for a scholar in residence weekend there at a Kolal, 
that was founded by our alumni, two uh, incredibly dedicated and tremendous Talmidei Chachamim, Rabbi Yosef Shemtov and Rabbi Avraham Levi Chaim. Uh, some of you might recognize those names. And I commented on you know, how amazing it is that a boy from Miami Beach learned from them as they were older students than me. And then here we are 40 years after that, 40 plus years after that, um, doing an event in their kolal <clears throat> with their community, which is actually doing tremendously well and doing amazingly good things. And uh, the people that they have involved over there are just uh, wonderful, growing, curious, and uh, Torah-oriented people. And I say all of that because it always grows my appreciation for everything that my parents have done uh, for South Florida community, the Jewish world community. Somebody mentioned to me this morning that back in the 80s was actually 1980 when the yeshiva started accepting Iranian students, refugees, essentially from Iran, that yeshiva here was one of the only places doing that at that time. And to quote them, there was no money in it. Today, Persian community is actually quite wealthy. Um, but back then, this was not the thing to be done. And so I'm very proud of Yeshiva and all of its accomplishments over the years. So I would urge everyone, uh, if you want to be part of a story like this, come to Yeshiva dinner, come to more learning, bring your friends to come do more learning, because thank God that is our legacy. So on that note, one of the points that the Rabbi Shem Tov and Rabbi Levichai mentioned was the tremendous love that they received in the yeshiva. So in addition to the incredible learning, they really felt like they found the father in a country that was not their own, in my father and the mother in my mother. And this was a repeated comment that I heard over this past uh, Shabbos. And so the subject of love, as we all know, is critically important. And what we're going to talk about today is the power of real love. Again, we're going to use the term unconditional, but uh, perhaps even real or genuine or selfless love would be a better way to describe it. So this week's Parsha, we have some of the most difficult storyline in all the Torah, which is saying something given the fact that we just read the story of Yaakov and Esau and the blessings and Yaakov masquerading like his brother Esau. So if I say to you that again, we are now dealing with a storyline that is either equally or perhaps even more difficult to understand, uh, that's quite a statement. So what do I mean? We know that at the beginning of the parasha, Yaakov has this tremendous dream with the ladder and the angels and the promises that Hashem makes to him. Uh, but very clear from that dream is that even though Hashem is promising to protect Yaakov and to bring him home, the how-to and what exactly is Yaakov supposed to do or not do is not at all spelled out in that dream. What Hashem talks about is bringing him back home in Shalom to his father's household. But there's no mention of you should marry this girl or you should have this father-in-law or you should work this amount of time or you should be away this number of years. None of that is part of the prophetic dream that Hashem does give to Yaakov at the beginning of the Parsha. So now we fast forward a little bit to that famous encounter by the well where Yaakov is immediately taken and enamored with Rachel. And according to Rashi and other commentaries, uh, the kiss of Yaakov of Rachel at the well is one of familial relationship because after all, they were cousins. But right after that, the Torah tells us, and this is chapter 29, sentence 18, 
Yaakov loved Rachel. Now, when I say right after that, it's actually a month later. The Torah describes how Yaakov learned, um, I'm sorry, Yaakov made a deal uh, with Lavan after one month for the hand of Rachel, Lavan's daughter, in marriage in exchange for Yaakov working seven years. So at the end of that one month, when Lavan says to Yaakov, hey, look, just because of my relative doesn't mean you have to work for me for free, which is an interesting statement by itself. Um, what do you want your wages to be? To which Yaakov responds, he will work seven years for the privilege of marrying Rachel, the daughter of Lavan. At that point, the Torah tells us, and Yaakov loved Rachel. And he said, I will work for you for seven years for your daughter, the younger daughter, Rachel. And Lavan says, listen, it's better that I should give her to you than give her to some other guy. And no problem, stay with me and you'll do that work. Yaakov, of course, works that seven years. And it was just like a few days <coughs> in his love for her, which is an interesting expression. Also, Sephorno says, just by way of a little elucidation, that when a person is in love, the rabbis tell us that things don't always operate according to normal procedure. People kind of get out of themselves and different types of behaviors, uh, which are not generally considered normal uh, in the context of love can be considered par for the course. So the fact that he looked at that period of time like a small period of time because he loved her so much is somehow explained by the fact that love does crazy things to people. Nonetheless, the Torah continues that Lavan makes a party. And of course, Lavan does the ultimate treachery by replacing Rachel with his daughter Leah so that it's only in the morning that Yaakov realizes that in fact, he did not marry that night on his wedding night, the woman that he loved, Rachel. Instead, he married Leah. To which Yaakov correctly says to Lavan, in the morning, he says, you know, after he sees this lay, he says, he says to Lavan, what did you do to me? Did I not work for Rachel with you? Why did you deceive me? To which Lavan says, listen, buddy, in our town, the older daughter has to be married before the younger daughter. There's just no way to do it any other way. So yeah, Lavan says to Yaakov, but listen, no problem. You can have this week of partying of Sheva Brachos, and I'll give you Rachel also for another seven years of work. To which Yaakov readily agrees, and that's what happens. And then of course the Torah outlines the children that start being born by Leah and the whole back and forth, Rachel or Leah, many different things. And we have 11 tribes born along with Dina in this period of time of the seven years that Yaakov is now working additionally to the original seven, so that he ends up with the two daughters of Lavan for 14 years of work. Okay, now I mentioned at the outset that this is a very difficult storyline. I wanna ask you a hypothetical question, but before I get to the hypothetical question, let's make it simple. We'll kind of build the questions. Why in the world, this is question number one, why in the world does Yaakov tolerate the trick that Lavan played of substituting Leah in place of Rachel? Why does he not insist on marrying Rachel without committing to an additional seven years of work? And there's many different ways to look at that question. So for example, Yaakov could say to uh, Lavan, 
I don't care what the custom is. You didn't tell me this at the beginning. Take back Leah. Give me Rachel. That was the deal. And seemingly, he would be correct in doing so. Okay, so it's the custom of the place, but that's Lovin's problem. Lovin made that commitment. That's not Yaakov's problem. Or simply say, I'm not going to give you back Leah. That's fine. I'll be married to her too, but give me Rachel. And I won't work another seven years. I already did my work. Right? That would be another way that Yaakov could present his legal argument of marrying Rachel without committing to more work. So if that's so, why is he committing to another seven years? That's question number one. That's pretty difficult. But like I said, it's going to build. Question number two. Now, we know that there's a famous Chazal that tell us that Rachel and Yaakov knew who Lavan was, suspected him of potential chicanery, and therefore devised a secret code so that Yaakov would know if, in fact, it's Rachel that he's been given that night or if it's Leah. And according to the Chachamim, Rachel gave the secret code to Leah so as to prevent Leah from embarrassment. Okay, now whether or not you go with that Chazal, right? So as Rabbi Natim likes to say, okay, I don't see that in the Pashup Shat. Okay, so let's say it did, let's say that's not the way it went down. But definitely what did happen is that Yaakov asked to marry Rachel and instead he was given Leah. That definitely happened. And I don't think it's a stretch to presume that Leah and Rachel knew that Yaakov's intention was not to marry Leah, but it was to marry Rachel. He seemingly Yaakov was not keeping that a secret, right? He loves Rachel. Well, why does Yaakov not hold either Rachel or Leah accountable for their betrayal? Forget about what Lavan did. He turned to Lavan the next morning and says, Hey Lavan, what did you do to me? I mean, could you imagine Yaakov's first conversation with Rachel after this happened? How does he how does the Torah not record that Yaakov is saying to Rachel, You betrayed me? I don't want to marry you. You're not the woman of my dreams, you're the woman of my nightmare. But instead, he says, yeah, I'll work another seven years for Rachel. It seems unconscionable. So here's the scenario that I mentioned at the beginning. That was question number two. But let's think of it this way in terms of the following scenario. Imagine, if you would, that you know either, let's say you know a fine young man, and you're very close to him, and then he gets married. And the morning after the marriage, he calls you up and says, you'll never guess what happened last night. I thought I was marrying this girl that I told you all about who I'm in love with. Turns out that she, her sister, and her father, meaning my current father-in-law, played this tremendous trick on me, and I ended up marrying her instead of my beloved. What do you think I should do today? Can anybody picture an advisor, a rabbi, a counselor saying, no, 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 it's no problem. Everything's fine. You should continue. You don't need counseling. You don't need therapy. You should definitely marry both of these girls because at this time it's legal. And don't worry about a thing. It's all good. It doesn't matter. Could anybody imagine such a scenario? Really? So, therefore, I don't think it's over-dramatization to state that only someone with mental health issues would marry a woman as traitorous as Ruffell after that betrayal, and to then nest with her, her sister, and that father-in-law for the next 20 years. I mean, you really have to wonder about the mental health of Yaakov. 
I don't think that is an understatement in any way, shape, or form. How can we possibly explain this scenario? And then to top it off, somehow we're going to say, okay, uh, I don't know what you want to say. Maybe he thinks it's what his parents want. Uh, maybe he just loves Rachel so much. And yeah, he does have blinders on. Whatever you want to say about his mental state. But now it's 14 years later, the Torah tells us. After 14 years, he's earned, even according to Lavan's estimation, the wives of that are both Leah and Rachel. And Lavan says to him, listen, you know, God made me wealthy because of you. Don't leave. What, what do you want? What, what could I possibly do to entice you to go into business with me now? Really? Is anybody going to make that business deal? You just lived 14 years of the most ridiculous charade that makes no sense, that totally undermines your relationship with your wives, any good family that you want to have. And Yaakov says, you know what? Actually, yeah, we can make a deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you give me these spotted and speckled and striped sheep, and I'll stay with you, and I'll earn my own money. We thought he had a mental health problem before, and now what? Really? This is what you're going to... Um, this is really what you're going to suggest that we need to, uh, you know, somehow do in order for Yaakov to earn money. I mean, if I, if I wanted to get like from and religious on you, I would say Yaakov doesn't have the tachon that he can earn money another way. He has no faith. He has no confidence that God can make him successful outside of Lavan's house. So those are our four questions. So in a brief recap, they are. Why does Yaakov even tolerate this trick that Lovin plays the substituting way in place of Rachel? Let him just say, I'm taking Rachel, and that's that, in whatever scenario, however you would want to see that happen with whatever details. Question number two is that even presumably without the famous secret codes that the Chazal speak about, Leah and Rachel know that Yaakov's intention is to marry Rachel, not Leah. So why does Yaakov not hold either Rachel or Leah accountable for this unbelievable betrayal? And then number three, if we can imagine the scenario of what any normal person would advise a groom on this such of a situation occurring, it would not be to stay in that marriage or to marry that girl who betrayed him or to then stay with them for you know the next 15, 14 or 20 years. So how in the world do we understand that Yaakov makes these choices? And then finally, the final choice that Yaakov seems to make, which is also inexplicable, is after the 14 years are over, when he's really free and clear of Lavan, even according to Lavan's stipulations, why doesn't he get out of Dodge? Why is he staying there to make money for six years? It seems to make no sense at all. So I'd like to suggest the following as the beginning of our answer, and it has everything to do with love. And incredibly, a great point uh, that uh, Mrs. Rand, Debbie Rand, pointed out to me uh, recently is that we don't know anything about the mother of Rachel and Leah, Lavan's wife, or the mother of Rachel and Leah. We know nothing about her, which is also fascinating in that, in the, um, shall we say, ignoring of this woman who is the mother of Rachel and Leah, all we're left with is the relationship that Rachel and Leah have with their father, Lavan. That's all we know about their upbringing and the parenting, right? Which tells me, by the, the Torah's treatment of this subject, it tells me that 
the paradigm of parenting and love experienced by Rachel and Leah comes only from Lavan. Because the Torah makes no mention of a relationship with their mother, which means it doesn't play, meaning I'm understanding that the Torah is therefore saying is that the relationship that they had with their mother is not a factor in us understanding their development. And when we look at what the Torah does describe about Rachel and Leah, a lot of it revolves around feelings of being loved or hated. And therefore, it must be that all of that is irrelevant in terms of their mother and only relevant in terms of their father. And so therefore, I suggest to you that the upshot of the background of the parenting of Rachel and Leah is that the only love that they know is the love from their father, which is the epitome of conditional or selfless or self-interested love. Meaning, Lavan, as expressed in the storyline, is incapable of selfless, altruistic love. This is evidenced by many things. Well, first we have his manipulation of his daughters into marrying Yaakov in this tricky way, right, in this deceitful way, along with the fact that over the next many years that the, they are living under Lavan's umbrella or protection, they make no money of their own. For that entire 14 years, they are in complete servitude to Lavan. There's nothing of their own. It's frankly no different than slaves. Slaves who eat and drink at their master's, uh, so to speak, goodwill, who owe all of their service, all of their earnings, all of their work to their master. And we know this because Yaakov himself, at the end of 14 years, turns to Lavan and says, when am I going to have an opportunity to make any money for my household? How, how can I continue like this? And then at that point, they strike a new deal, which we're going to explore. But the point is that clearly, in this entire 14 years, it's not like Lavan says, you know what? I'm happy with, with you guys. You know, you're doing good work. You have good relationships. You're producing children. Here's some money. You know, go strike out on your own a little bit. You know, you can have your own independence. No, he demands every single second of work from Yaakov. The, the wives are busy having and raising children. And that's their life. That's a father. That's a father's unconditional love, or is that a father's conditional, transactional, selfish love? And I say Lavan does have love because at the end of the day, he wants to kiss his children and grandchildren, and he seems to want to have some sort of a relationship with them. But on the other hand, he treats them like slaves, which after 20 years, both Rachel and Leah say explicitly, is, has he not treated us like strangers, that he sold us, he consumed our money. At the end of the day, 20 years go by, and then they realize who Lavan is. In addition, in terms of Lavan himself, his face is no longer pleasant to Yaakov the minute that Yaakov starts making money. The minute that Yaakov starts making his own hay, so to speak, during this last six years, Yaakov sees that Lavan no longer looks favorably at him. 
because here he is growing some independence, gaining some wealth of his own. So as soon as Yaakov starts succeeding in attaining wealth in his own right, Lavan cannot handle it. Is that a benevolent, loving father or father-in-law? Clearly not. Also, we never find Lavan giving anything except if it gives him a disproportionate beneficial advantage or return in contrast for what he has given. Sure, sure, yes, you can have the privilege of marrying my daughter for seven years of labor. That's unheard of. And then again, the same thing for seven years of labor. Oh yeah, you can stay with me, right? You shouldn't work for me for nothing. You can actually get room and board in exchange for your service with me is his initial deal with Yahweh. That's a disproportionate benefit, which he takes full advantage of because of Yaakov's vulnerability. And so, again, we see that Lavan does not have within him this ability to give generously or selflessly. And as I mentioned, his own daughters eventually characterize him as selling them and treating them like strangers. Now, having said all that, and understanding that the paradigm of love that Rachel and Leah experience is love on love, Yaakov understands that the only way that Rachel and Leah would have carried out the marriage subterfuge is by love on cajoling and manipulating them to believe that this would be the best outcome for Rachel for Leah and for Yaakov. And that's not such a hard argument to make because first of all, Rachel, we're going to presume, is an extremely giving person, whether it's because Yaakov is taken with her or it's because she does in fact take care of her father's sheep or it's because we do know that she's willing to give up the husband in order that her sister shouldn't be embarrassed. We see very clearly the essential nature of Rachel to be that of a giving person. You think it's hard for a manipulator like Lovin to say, listen, Rachel, you want what's best for your sister. How terrible she's going to feel if you marry when the custom is that the older daughter gets married first. And then if you want to go with the opinion that she's really afraid to marry Asaph, this is the only way to save her from Asaph, right? These are all very easy arguments to understand that Lovin would use to manipulate his daughter, Rachel. And Leah too. And furthermore, he would give Rachel the feeling that she's going to facilitate her sister's marriage to a great husband, that Leah and Rachel, because of their love for one another, could exist amicably as co-wives and even be in charge of the household and the children as they would deem appropriate, all of which is true. It's true, right? Rachel and Leah do get along. And even with that little blip, if you will, about the extra night and the dudaim, all of that does not change the fact that they coexisted remarkably well together, co-parented remarkably well together. Lovin is right. If anybody could pull off this co-wife situation, it's his two daughters, Rachel and Leah. But at the end of the day, he only did it so that he could gain control of Yaakov, and the children of Yaakov, Rachel, and Leah. That's the love and paradigm. And Yaakov knows this crystal clear. Yaakov knows the nature 
of Lavan because Yaakov knows his mother, and ya which is Lavan's sister. Yaakov knows his brother Esau, and Yaakov knows his own nature. They all come from Aram. Yaakov is the son of Rivka, the brother of Lavan. And the Torah repeats this many times to make the very clear point that Yaakov is in touch with the true nature of Lavan and what he's capable of doing. And he also knows and understands that Rachel and Leah do not know true love and that they are blind to their father's selfish intentions and manipulative conduct. He knows that. And therefore, Yaakov says, if I show Rachel and Leah real love, selfless love, unconditional love, they will learn what real love is. It will become the basis of the love that they can give to their children. And they will also be able to learn who their father Lavan is and detach from him. Because without Rachel and Leah deeply understanding the true nature of their father Lavan, they will remain attached and devoted to him because they think that this is love. So Yaakov knows the only way to save Rachel and Leah and help them develop into who they should become is to grant them this subterfuge, grant them this trick. As long as he can make sure that he will marry Rachel also, he is 100% committed to loving both Leah and Rachel. And we see this also explicitly in the sentence, because even after he marries Rachel and he loves Rachel more, the Torah says, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. It never says that Yaakov hated Leah. It says that he loved Rachel more than Leah, which means he loved Leah also. Yes, he connected more with Rachel. Yes, he had this natural affinity to Rachel, no question. But he loved Leah also. Despite the fact that the Torah says that Hashem saw that Leah was hated, it meant that she felt hated. Not that Yaakov hated her. He definitely is completely prohibited to stay married to a woman that a husband hates. That's against the Haftal Re'echa Kamocha. It's against what the Torah wants in a marriage. That's not allowed. There's no way to say that Yaakov actually does not like Leah ever. And more than that, the Torah explicitly says that he loved Rachel more, which is also explicitly saying that he loved Leah. And he's committed to that because he wants what's best for them. He wants them to realize that they are entitled to building a family and children and household and wealth of their own. They are entitled to building a legacy and a value system that they respect, that they want, no matter what their father will say about guilting them into otherwise or manipulating them differently. Yaakov is 100% devoted to making sure that Leah and Rachel experience true love, unconditional love. And therefore, he commits to stay in a marriage with Rachel. He commits to stay in a marriage, despite her betrayal of him, in a marriage with Leah, despite her betrayal of him, because he understands, A, that they were well-intentioned, and B, that they need this sacrifice and commitment from him to become the mothers that they can become, of which he is confident that they will be. As we know, Rivka is a great woman, and she also comes 
from this genealogical DNA. And so therefore he stays. Not only does he stay, he agrees to another seven years of work to show them both that he's working seven years for each one of them. What a statement of devotion to them. And it's underscored by actual love for Leah, even though he didn't ask for Leah's hand in marriage. But if that's the scenario that they're proposing, this is the ultimate way to beat Lavan. So we said, okay, but now it's 14 years later. And 14 years later, he's done. Why doesn't he get out of Dodge while he can and say, listen, we made a business deal. I kept my end. You kept your end. See you later, Charlie. The answer is very simple. Because Rachel and Leah don't know yet who Lavan is. Because until this point, Yaakov had no opportunity to earn money of his own, to build his family in his own molding and independence. He had no opportunity to do that yet. 14 years, he was a dedicated slave to Lavan with zero expectation, hope, or right to make his own money. And therefore, Yaakov says, okay, Lavan, you got a deal. And he lives with Lavan for the next seven years. And the wives, the daughters of Lavan, experience firsthand how their father is trying to trick them out of their own money hundreds of times. And therefore, after six years of that kind of treatment, where the daughters live firsthand, that Lavan is 100% incapable of allowing them to build a life for themselves. When Yaakov says to Rachel and Leah, you know, it's time for me to go, it's time for us to go. Not only do they not argue, but they make the case for Yaakov. They say, you're right. Our father has sold us. He's treated us like strangers. He's consumed our money. And it's in that moment that Yaakov says, I don't need permission from Lavan. Now we're ready to build our own family, our own home, with our own independence, because my wives understand who their father is, and they are on board with me. At the end of the day, Yaakov escapes with everything. Lavan gets nothing. From all that he was hoping, he had the money that he had from the last 20 years, but in fact, he has zero relationship with any of his daughters or grandchildren. And that's the treaty that is made at the end of the parsha when Lavan chases after them and he says, I would have wanted to bring harm to you. All the true colors are revealed, that everything was only for Lavan's self-interest. And the minute that they're leaving and taking anything that he could imagine he has a right to, it's a betrayal of Lavan. That's how he presents. And so therefore he even threatens what he would have done had God not appeared to him. To which Yaakov says, I did nothing, I took nothing, you had everything, and now the only way we can move forward is if we make a covenant that you have nothing to ever do with us again. To which Lovin agrees, which tells you what's Lovin really interested in. He's interested in that Yaakov doesn't come back and try to hurt him or do anything negative to him. He's interested in having a covenant of self-protection so that his daughters will have their family, and in Lovin's mind, somehow that will be because of him, but he will have nothing ever to do with them again, and he's fine with that. That's an amazing statement of self-interest and zero genuine caring for his daughters and grandchildren. 
where he claims, listen, you should have said goodbye. I would, you know, wanted to make a party for all of you and I would have sent you off with fanfare. And now he kisses all of them. He's basically kissing them literally goodbye. You got nothing to do with each other anymore because he's only thinking of himself. Now, there's a very interesting measure that happens to uh, point out that uh, Lovin came home and all of his assets were completely looted and he is now a pauper. That's another interesting medrash, you know, just to kind of put the icing on the cake if you um, want to accept that interpretation. But the bottom line is that Yaakov escapes with everything because his love, his, his wives understand what real love is. They understand how to raise children now. And they understand that they're going to be building a family and a dynasty of their own, which of course we know becomes the Jewish people. So this is a very, I think, clear, simple way to understand the storyline in a very cogent manner. And we can understand now so much of the tremendous greatness of Yaakov and that he is not mentally challenged, but that actually he understands everything that is at stake. He has tremendous keen insight into who Rachel and Leah are, into who Lavan is, and to how to win with tremendous patience and love. And so one of the important things that we have to conclude here in terms of our practical applications is that we can't ignore the fact that the children of Yaakov become the most blessed people in the world. The blessings that the tribes attain, both from Yaakov's blessings and from Moshe's blessings and from Hashem, make the descendants of these unions, I'm talking about Yaakov and Leah, Yaakov and Rachel, of course, in combination with their predecessors, make them the most blessed children on earth which tells you that in order for a human being to develop correctly, they need their parents' unconditional love. They need selfless love. They need to be given the type of love that Yaakov gave to both Rachel and Leah, and they need to give that kind of love to their children. Too often, parents are thinking of how their children reflect on them. What will people say about me if my child does A, B, or C? Or what does it say to people that my child has failed in a certain way? What does it say to people about how I raise them or about who I am? And that's the complete wrong focus of a parent. The parent needs to think about what is it that my child needs, irrespective of whatever other people think about who their child is, what their child is going through, and why they're failing or looking in a way that doesn't reflect well on the parents or family. That has to be basically a non-issue. The only issue that should come to a person's mind is what does my child need? How can I help them? And what do I do that is truly best for them? That's what Yaakov was thinking. He wasn't thinking in this moment, what is he going to do that's best for himself in terms of having wives and children and a life that wasn't slave labor? Because if he had been thinking those things, He's out the door the next morning. There's no way that he stays married to Leah or to Rachel or somehow he stays married to Leah. He takes her with him, whatever. It's not at all about him. If it would be, he wouldn't subject himself to 20 years of complete pain and suffering at Lavan's hands. And therefore, the way to build the incredible children that Yaakov and Lava and Leah and Rachel build is through this kind of of giving through this kind of love, through this kind of focus, and that's ultimately the story of the Jewish people. In addition to that, 
we really have to be very mindful. I'm talking now practical application. We have to be very mindful of what is the paradigm of love that the person with whom I'm dealing has experienced their whole life. Because oftentimes that will explain a lot about who they are, their development or their behaviors. And keeping that in mind and then thinking to oneself that maybe I can present a different type of love to them, which will allow them to mature or develop differently to being people that receive healthy, unconditional and true altruistic love that can truly change the trajectory of another human being, despite whatever example the parent was to them. And that's another very important point. And the goal has to be where the person on their own realizes the difference, the contrast between the love of their upbringing and paradigm that maybe wasn't so healthy. Unfortunately, that happens sometimes versus the love that hopefully we can give them today, which is a healthy giving and selfless love. And then when they can appreciate the distinction, that's when they can emerge into the confident, capable people that they need to be and become their most productive selves. So those are two ways to understand practical applications. Thank and finally, you. I just want to conclude that sometimes no matter what kind of love we give people, um, you know, it's not always the best idea uh, to give a person unconditional love because sometimes we're enabling them to continue bad behavior. So that's an area that we can, you know, explore further. And we've, we've actually talked about it in the past of not empowering a person's negative uh, behaviors by explaining to them that we love them without hesitation, reservation, and despite, you know, all terrible self-destructive things that they're going to do. So I just want to put that to the side, just to state it as, you know, a fact that that can happen. But also, we have to sometimes recognize that there are people that are candidates to receiving selfless and unconditional love. And then there are people that unfortunately might be too far gone to actually do something good with that selflessness and that love that you're giving to them. And unfortunately, whether it's the example of, you know, helping uh, the people of Gaza for so many years uh, to build their own lives in their own uh, city or country, um, you know, we see how that turns out because sometimes people are in situations either because of manipulation of other circumstances that they don't themselves get the way to receive love properly. And we have to be careful about that situation also. Clearly, Yaakov made the estimation that Rachel and Leah could learn differently. Um, I don't know that it was a gamble. I don't know exactly why he was so certain that uh, he could win this, this game, so to speak. Uh, but we certainly have to be careful that the candidates upon whom we are showering tremendous unconditional and selfless love and time and energy are people that are actually capable of ultimately realizing the difference between narcissistic transactional love and selfless and altruistic love, and then using that to become selfless people themselves. And that's really the question is, do we think that the person with whom I am dealing and trying to give this energy of love towards, is that person capable of becoming a giving type person as well? So we'll leave with that. I'll take any questions or comments, and then hopefully everybody will zoom over to my father's year.
Yes, Daphne. Thank you. That was a very useful um, sheer. Although the the stuff at the end about determining who is you should give your unconditional love to, I think that's a whole other uh, arena. Yeah. But what I wanted to focus on was uh, you mentioned a couple times that you know Yaakov must be crazy who in his right mind does this. Um, I you know the obvious <clears throat> thing to me is. He he was still reeling and having nightmares and dreams about his interaction with his own brother. So um, letting the sisters not usurp each other was a part of healing. And being tricked by Lavan was uh, some maybe some kind of, uh, you know, guilty punishment that he just felt like, OK, you know, I'll do this. And and these are the people, you know from whom I come and I have to deal with these certain traits in, in my mother and my uncle and my soon to be my, my wives. And um, I have to live through it and I have to, you know, evolve in these 21 years. I think you make some very good points um, where it gets tricky for me, what you're saying, meaning why I find that we need more, uh, even though, like I said, I, you're making some very good points is number one, it's not great that he's putting up with Lavan because of self-punishing, right? Himself, right? You, yeah, you're agreeing with that, but you're saying, yes, you, it's understandable. And that's why I say it. it's a good point. So I'm just saying I would prefer that, you know, maybe he's coming at it from a stronger uh, mental state rather than that, number one. And that's what I'm suggesting, that he is. And number two, I totally get that he wants the sisters to love one another and to care for one another. But if we ask the very simple question, could a husband trust either one of these girls in the future? You know, well, it depends, you know, if, if their sister's love is at stake, that's going to come first. And that's a very hard thing to marry into. Yes, Daphne, go ahead. Well, in, in fact, it, it did become a, a big difficulty down the way. You know, Leia had the physical love and, uh, um, uh, and, and she had the love of her children. And, Rachel didn't get that for a long time. She missed the having, you know, the love from a six-year-old bringing her flowers. They're there and for I what? Is, isn't there a midrash uh, about how one day um, the sisters traded? Uh, Rachel said, no, that, no, "No, that's the the sentence. That's not a midrash." But but I'm I'm saying, what's the there for? In other well, words, they, yours... they didn't always get along, and then. Uh, you know, they, well, their children okay. fought hey, against it. No, one second, but you're saying, but I'm saying, you're saying the point was to help them get along. Right, but they didn't always get along. Okay. I, I thought well, I heard us say I, that, you know, they didn't. Uh, and, so, okay, and so that's a, that's a separate later. question. I'm arguing that for the vast part of the majority, they did. Okay, but, okay, that's another question. But just to go back to your original point, I'm just responding to you that if his reason to stay in this marriage is what they can do for each other, and how he can support them in their relationship with each other, in my mind, that doesn't justify being in a marriage where you can't trust your wives. To me, to me that's, the, I, that's I, a huge problem. I, I think that he wanted to be trusted. That I think okay. that he had feelings about his own self. Okay, good, good, good. So that's similar to your other point. And again, that's going to be a version, a, a much more understandable version than most people have, but a version of his mental challenges. 
Okay. Yeah. And and I'm not saying I'm not saying you can't say that. I'm just saying I am saying something different. That's all. But you're but it's those like I said, those are really interesting points. They are. Twenty-one years to change into this wonderful person, you know. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Very good points. I appreciate it, Daphne. Thank you. Anybody else? Okay. So I'm I'm assuming we're good for today then. All right. Okay. So everybody have a super day. Please don't forget to zoom over to my father. And if you can join us in Bell Harbor, Parshas Vayishlach and the Yeshiva dinner, which is the next night, uh, December 3rd. Have a great day. Good Shabbos, everyone. Thank you very much.